This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have your word to turn to that your word is the foundation of our thinking. It is the rock upon which our lives are built because it is in your word that we have truth. And truth, it informs us of the nature of reality. Father, we understand that the universe was created by you, the earth, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And that this is your creation, your world, and that the only reality is that which conforms to the laws that you have established for your creation. Now, Father, as we study your word, we recognize that we're challenged with some difficult things in Jesus' message that called the Sermon on the Mount, and that these apply to each of us individually. We pray that we might have the spiritual courage to stand up, respond, and to implement these principles in our lives. And, Father, we pray that we might fully understand what we're studying this morning, that it may be used in our lives by God the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you think that you are in danger of hellfire? How many of you think that you are in danger of, in your spiritual life, of not not uh, going to heaven, but maybe having a destiny in hell. Well, if you read through several passages in the New Testament, we run into a problem because we see Jesus addressing his disciples and teaching them about various principles of behavior in the spiritual life with the clear threat that failure to do what he says to do puts them in danger of hell. At least that's how it's translated in the English translations in almost all of our English Bibles. So the question we need to answer this morning before we go forward in our study in Matthew is are we in danger of hell? Because at first glance, that seems to be what Jesus is teaching. You turn with me in your Bibles to our study in Matthew chapter 5. What we see in our study of Matthew 5 at this point in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is contrasting his view or God's view, they're the same thing, of the Mosaic law with that of the teaching of the Pharisees. We've seen this in the previous section 
that he is contrasting his teaching versus their teaching, especially with regard to righteousness. And as he began, we saw that uh, he focused on character attributes that should characterize those who respond to the message uh, regarding the uh, coming of the kingdom. This is not a message for going to heaven, as we've seen. This is a message related to preparation for the establishment on the earth of the kingdom that was promised to Israel in the Old Testament where the Messiah would rule and reign on the throne of David from Jerusalem, that this was a literal, physical, geopolitical kingdom that would eventually be established by God on the earth. Those who would populate in terms not just being there, but in terms of having ruling and reigning responsibilities, whether Jews under the dispensation of Israel or by application, even though the church age has not been announced yet, it still applies to church age believers who will also rule and reign with Christ in the coming kingdom. This is a character quality of those who will fully participate in all of the blessings and privileges in that coming kingdom. That section focusing on those character attributes we refer to as the Beatitudes. Following the end of his discussion of the Beatitudes, which serves as sort of an introduction, he talked about the role of the believer in terms of being salt and light. We looked at those metaphors, and we understood that salt, of being the salt of the earth, is not a term for preservation of culture, as many people want to define it, because why in the world does God want to preserve the nasty culture of the world around us? Salt is not, that's not the purpose of salt in this metaphor. We saw that salt, as it was used in agriculture, and we went through the whole study showing this was an agricultural metaphor, not a kitchen metaphor, an agricultural metaphor, indicating that salt was used as part of the, part of a, process of being a weed killer and to so that a field would be more productive so the focus of the metaphor being the salt of the earth should be translated salt of for the land and its purpose being in relation to what we would call today fertilizer even modern fertilizer has a small amount of salts present in order to function as a weed killer so we looked at that. We're also the light of the world, which means that our part of our function as believers is to bring illumination of God's word to the world around us. Having concluded with that, Jesus then set up the next part of his message by talking about his purpose, which was not to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. We looked at verses 17 through 20, and we saw that what Jesus is setting up is the fact that he came to truly fulfill the prophets in contrast to the Pharisees who were teaching something less than what the, what the law teaches. Uh, but, and they have a view of righteousness that is less than that which God requires. And he's going to give six examples starting in verse 21. And he sets this up in a, in a manner where he begins by saying, Uh, what the Pharisees are teaching, what people have heard, what they have believed that is not true. 
and contrasting that with the true interpretation. In verse 21, for example, he begins, you have heard that it was said. Verse 22, he then positively teaches the meaning of, of the passage. He says, but I say to you. Again, in verse 27, he says, but you have heard that it was said. And then in verse 28, he teaches the truth and says, but I say to you. Six times he, he does this. Now, in the first two passages of correction, which focus on murder in, in verses 21 through 26 and adultery in verses 27 to 30, he has a warning in those passages. And that warning concludes that if you fail to be obedient, you shall, in verse, at the end of verse 22, you shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, Jesus is talking to disciples that are already believers. How can they be in danger of hell? In verse uh, 29, the warning is that you might be thrown into hell. So this sets up a particular point of confusion for a lot of people who read through this passage and they have a hard time understanding just what Jesus is getting at. And the problem is that the original language of Greek, and even when we go back and look at the history in Hebrew, it's not talking about hell. But this is the traditional interpretation. You look at most of your English translations, they will translate this hell. The original Greek says, the, says Gehenna, which in, originally meant in Hebrew the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Gehenna is just south of, of Jerusalem, just south of the old city of David. And there are various things that happen there, which we'll get into in a minute. But for some reason, as, and we'll see some of those reasons as we go through the study this morning, uh, scholars have almost exclusively wanted to translate this as hell. Now, if this is really hell, then we have a problem. Not only do we have a theological problem, but we have some other problems. How many of us have heard people talk about, well, that won't happen until hell freezes over? Well, if the Valley of Gehenna is hell, then we had a problem this last winter because <laughs> in December... They got a record amount of snow in Jerusalem and hell froze over. Of course, that might explain numerous strange things that have happened the last three or four months, but I don't really think that that is what the Bible is teaching in regard to the Valley of Gehenna. So we have to do some digging because what I am going to teach this morning runs contrary to what you will read in your Bible, encyclopedias, and dictionaries. I've come through quite a few over the last week or 10 days, and there's just this monolithic view that Gehenna is hell. Now, the pro one of the problems that we have is hell is, is not really a technical term in the original language. Gehenna is the term. It's the Valley of Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. Hell isn't even related to, to the Lake of Fire. Now, there are some who teach that hell is actually Hades, which for now is the place of torments or sort of a holding place of fiery torment for 
uh, unbelievers prior to the great white throne judgment. And that is true about Hades, but the English concept of hell is somewhat muddled. But in popular imagination, usually it relates to the eternal condemnation of the lake of fire. The problem that we have as we look at these passages is that most of the time when Jesus is speaking and warning about the danger of being thrown into uh, the valley of Hinnom, uh, he's talking to believers. So how in the world can this relate to believers? What we see is that the valley of Gehenna is one of the most well-known topographical features around the old city of Jerusalem. Here we have a map. This is the old city. The old city located here, just a minute. See if I can, well, that's not working. Okay. Here we have the Hinnom Valley here to the south of the old city of Jerusalem. Running from north to south on the right here, we have, we have the uh, Kidron Valley. And then you can't see it today, but there was another valley that ran between the, the residential area just to the west of the Temple Mount, and this area was where many of the priests lived, and then there was a walkway going across to the Temple Mount. But this was another valley. So these are the three major valleys that c- characterize the topography of, of Jerusalem. The Hanom Valley was just to the south of the, of the old city. It was here that the Israelites sacrificed their children to the god Moloch, according to Second Chronicles 28, 3 and 33, 6. The good king, Josiah, who restored the obedience to the law, abolished this practice, and then he desecrated this valley, according to Second Kings 23, 10. And after that, the valley became associated with the judgment of sinners, God's judgment of sinners, as seen in Jeremiah 7.32 and Jeremiah 19.6. Later on, during the period of the second temple, this became a garbage dump. It was a place where uh, refuse was thrown. It was a place where sewage was dumped, and it was a place where these the, the the garbage was burned. And so the story is that that it was the continual burning of these fires in the Valley of Hinnom that became an imagery for the Lake of Fire. It is on the basis of that identification of the metaphor that people today often understand the Valley of Hinnom as being related to the lake of fire. However, as we'll see, that is not biblically grounded. We have to challenge this because of the uh, many of the uh, many of the implications of that for scriptural interpretation. When most modern translations render the New Testament word as hell, that's not a translation, that is an interpretation. Literally, in the, as we see in the top of the slide, the Greek word is geena, which is a, uh, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew gehinom. Gehinom, geh means valley, hinom is the name of a person that goes back to antiquity, the valley of hinom. And so this is how we should probably translate it in order to catch the thrust of what this means. 
we have to see how the Valley of Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, was, was referenced in the Old Testament in order to understand the significance of the uh, figure of speech that Jesus is using. So how was this word used in the Old Testament? Well, it's used literally in Joshua to describe the border between the land that God was giving to the tribe of Judah and the land that God was giving to the tribe of Benjamin. This is seen in Joshua 15.8 and Joshua 18.16. Joshua 15.8 is describing the border of, of uh, the tri- for the tribe of Judah and says that this extended up by the valley of the son of Hinnom to the southern slope of the Jebusite city. At that point, uh, the Israelites had not conquered Jerusalem. That was left for a couple of more generations until the time of David. Uh, in Joshua 18.6, the border of Benjamin, which was contiguous to that of Joshua, is described as coming down to the end of the mountain that lies before the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is in the valley of the Rephaim on the north. So it's talking about the same place, the same location, which is that valley that is to the south of the city of Jerusalem. This location is identified in Jeremiah 19.2 as the Potsherd Gate. That's the only reference in the Old Testament to the Potsherd Gate. Most scholars identify the Potsherd Gate with the Dung Gate. Now, those of you who have uh, been to Israel with me in the past, uh, we've entered in many times going into the area known as the Southern Steps. We The entry point there is the was called the Dung Gate. But that's later. That's that's when most of the cities to the south of the uh, Temple Mount really wasn't in existence. We're talking about the original Dung Gate, which you see in this map, which uh, this is the Temple Mount area here. The Dung Gate, that is the modern uh, uh, version or the modern expression, is up in this area here. Whereas in the Old Testament period, south of the Temple Mount, you had the Ophel here, and then, uh, actually, this is the area right here that would have been, uh, that is where we enter in today that is called the Dung Gate. But south of that was the old city of David, and it is on the southern end of the city of David that we have, you, if you can just, if you can read that, some of you can't see it, the Dung Gate is located at the southern end of the old city of David uh, near the pool of Siloam. So in the Old Testament, this was identified with, with uh, the Potsherd Gate. And Jeremiah 19.2, we're told, go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the Potsherd Gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. So this is just immediately to the south of the old city. Now, the third thing we see from our study of the Old Testament is that this is where the southern kingdom of Judah sinned by committing child sacrifice, and they burned their sons and daughters in the fires of Molech. Molech, sometimes called Chemosh, was a Moabite uh, god, a false god, an idol that they worshipped. This was one of the most horrible and egregious forms of idolatry and paganism in the ancient world where people, in order to somehow uh, gain God's blessing, would take their children alive and they would burn them 
alive in the arms of Molech. There was a huge idol, as you see in the picture, where the gods' arms were outstretched. Underneath was a furnace burning, and they would place their children alive on, the, on his arms, and they would be, go up in the flames of Moloch. This is condemned in numerous places in the Old Testament. In Second Chronicles 28.3, we read regarding King Ahaz, who was a, a wicked or evil king in the southern kingdom. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. In Jeremiah 7.31, we read, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. So this represents the one of the worst failures spiritually on the part of the Israelites in the southern kingdom. This was one of the reasons God brought such a harsh judgment against them by destroying the southern kingdom through the military defeat, conquest and defeat, from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Jeremiah is writing at that time. Jeremiah began his ministry around just before 605, the first invasion by the Babylonians, around 607-606, warning about the coming judgment. There were three invasions by Nebuchadnezzar. The third invasion was when he conquered the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and in that process there were... uh, Tens of thousands of Jews that were slaughtered and they were buried in the valley of Hinnom. This was the judgment that, that Jeremiah predicted would take place. This is our fourth point, that for their sins of idolatry, Judah was to be punished there in the valley of Hinnom in 586 B.C. So this was a historic judgment. It is God's discipline on the nation Israel for their spiritual failure and their spiritual rebellion. It is not a historic event tied to eternal condemnation at all in the Old Testament. It's not used to depict their future uh, eternal state in the lake of fire. It was a prediction of a judgment in time, divine discipline in history, on the nation Israel for their spiritual failure. So in Jeremiah 19.6, Jeremiah predicted that as punishment for their sins, the valley would be used as a mass burial site for those slaughtered when the Babylonians destroyed the city in 586 B.C. Jeremiah 7, verses 31 and 32, speaks of this. Verse 31 is one I've quoted already that speaks of the historical failure of the people. Verse 32 predicts how they will be, the Israelites will be disciplined for this. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no longer be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. That was a historical judgment that occurred in 586 B.C. The same thing is said again, almost uh, word for word, in Jeremiah 19.6, that the valley of the son of Hinnom would be called the valley of the slaughter. 
So what's our conclusion? In evaluating the use of this phrase, the Valley of Hinnom, we've seen that it was not used as a reference for future eternal condemnation, but as a place of divine discipline upon the nation Israel for their spiritual failure. Thus, it became a symbol not of a fiery destruction, but it is a symbol of the nation's spiritual failure, their condemnation by God for that failure, the shame that came upon the nation because they had reached such a low level of disobedience to God and a picture of divine discipline in time upon the nation Israel. Now, there's no place in any of the references in the Old Testament where the Valley of Hinnom is a picture of an eternal fiery punishment at all. So we skip about 400 years, known as the silent years, between the close of the Old Testament canon and the opening of the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus comes along, and in the at the beginning of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he warns believing disciples about the danger of Gehenna, of being thrown or cast into the valley of Gehenna. So what does that mean? Well, in the interim period, the major development related to the Valley of Hinnom, as I pointed out earlier, was it was turned into a garbage dump. It was a place of desecration, of uncleanness. It was a place where uh, garbage was dumped, but it was also burned. Now, just because fire occurred there does not mean this is necessarily a picture of the lake of fire. We have seen a similar situation when we talk about baptism. If you come from certain traditions, usually Baptist traditions, every time you read the word baptism in the Bible, you automatically associate it with water. Except, remember, when we've studied baptism, we've seen that there are a number of baptisms in the Scripture that didn't involve water, maybe not in a, at least not in a positive way. There was the baptism of Noah, but Noah and his family weren't the ones that were, were wet, it was everybody else that was wet. Noah and his family remained dry. And baptism ultimately indicates identification with something. There was also the baptism of Moses, described in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and following. It's an identification with Moses in his faith. The Israelites who crossed through the Red Sea did not get wet. They didn't even get damp. They didn't even get the soles of their feet wet because the ground was completely dry as they fled before the Egyptians. Once all the Israelites were across the Red Sea, God caused the waters to collapse upon the armies of Pharaoh, and it was the bad guys, the, the army of, armies of Pharaoh that were destroyed by water. So the ones who got wet were the ones who were judged. The ones who were baptized remained dry. In the church age, we have the baptism by the Holy Spirit. It is a dry baptism. At the instant of faith in Christ, we're identified with Christ, uh, judicially by God, uh, we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So we have a problem that when we see water or baptism, we think of water, but that's not always correct. The same thing happens when we look at fire. Something gets burned in Scripture. We immediately think, ah, this must be a reference to the eternal lake of fire. 
But often the burning has other implications. Burning emphasizes cleansing and purification in many places in the Old Testament. In John chapter 15, where we have the imagery, the extended metaphor of the vine and the vineyard, uh, when Jesus talks about the branches that are pruned off and that they are removed and they are burned, this is not a picture of, of uh, the loss of salvation and believers going to the lake of fire. It's not a picture of the lake of fire at all. It is simply uh, an aspect that occurred in the agricultural pruning process that the, the branches that did not bear fruit were removed and burned. That's what literally would take place during the pruning time. It has, you can't apply that uh, to anything. So we have to come to understand how this imagery of the Valley of Hinnom is applied and used in the language of, of the Jews at the time of Christ. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of examples of that, so we have to look at the Scripture to understand that. One important observation, and I think this is very telling, is the only person who speaks about the Valley of Gehenna is Jesus. He only speaks about the Valley of Gehenna. The only recorded passages where he talks about the Valley of Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's no mention to the Valley of Hinnom in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written when? After the judgment of A.D. 70. See, part of the imagery that we'll, we'll discover is that in the, the burning in the Valley of Hinnom is also used as a picture of the future judgment in 70 A.D. against Israel, just as it was used of the judgment on the southern kingdom, uh, the fifth cycle of discipline in 586 B.C. Paul doesn't use the term. No one else in the New Testament uses the term. The only time it is used is in the context of Jesus teaching in and around Jerusalem to people who would understand that local idiom. It's not used in any passage, in any epistle that's written to the Gentiles because they wouldn't understand uh, the idiom. So let's just review what we see in terms of the New Testament. First of all, the passage is used, or the verbiage is used 12 times in 12 verses. Now, they're used in the synoptic gospels. That's a term they use that refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they give parallel versions of mostly the same events. So sometimes you will have the word used by uh, Matthew as he recounts Jesus saying in his gospel, Luke uses it in his gospel, but it's the same thing. So when we take out for redundancy, there's really only two or three instances when Jesus uses this uh, this idiom. He uses it one time in reference to uh, one time in reference to the Pharisees. He uses it three times when he is speaking to disciples who are already believers, and then there's one odd use that shows up by James, the writer of the epistle of James in James chapter, uh, James chapter 4, to refer to, as an idiom, I believe, to the sin nature. But we'll focus on the gospel sayings. First of all, we see Jesus uses it when he is speaking to disciples who are already believers. He's using this in addressing disciples who are already believers. Uh, the first two examples occur in the 
uh, uh, his sayings, a clarification on murder and clarification on adultery in Matthew 5.22 and in 5.29 and 30. So he's talking to believers about certain dangers related to disobedience, and if they're disobedience, they are, there is the real threat of being thrown into the valley of Hinnom, whatever that means. Matthew 5.22, he says, Those who says to his brother Racha, meaning you empty-headed fool, shall be in danger of the council, that is, judgment before the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you fool, you moron, different word there, shall be in danger of, let's just translate it correctly, shall be in danger of the valley of Hinnom. See, if you you read hell, that immediately shapes your thinking in the wrong direction. But if we just uh, translate it, the valley of Hinnom, all of a sudden you realize it may have another Another meaning. In 528 and 29, Jesus says, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Literally, you should translate it, than for your whole body to be thrown into the valley of Hinnom. Now, we basically have two options in interpreting this. First is that Gehenna describes the eternal lake of fire. That's option one. Option two is that Gehenna describes a form of temporal punishment or divine discipline in time. Now, the second option fits with what we've seen in the Old Testament, and you can tell already that that's where I'm headed with this because that fits the context better and it fits its historical usage better. However, there's a certain reason why people tend to translate it hell. First of all, most English translations translate it hell, so when people read that, they think that's what it means. After all, these are scholars. They know Greek. They know Hebrew. They wouldn't be doing this uh, out, out of uh, maliciousness, so so if they're going to translate it to hell, that must be correct. Second, if you do further study, you'll see that most Bible dictionaries or encyclopedias understand the idiom to be a reference to the eternal fires of the lake of fire. Well, there ought to be some reason for that too, so if all the Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias take it that way and the translations take it that way, why are you going to stand in the pulpit and say it means something else? Well, because it has other problems. Now, a third reason that people translate it and think of it as the eternal lake of fire is because when you look at some passages such as Matthew 18.8, Gehenna is used in a synonymous parallelism with eternal fire, which indicates the lake of fire. So in Matthew 18.8, Jesus is saying that if... Uh, your eye offends you, pluck it out, or you will be cast into eternal fire. In Matthew 19, 9, it says, if your foot offends you, cut it off, or you'll be thrown into Gehenna. So eternal fire and Gehenna are parallel, so that seems to settle it. Most people think it does. That means Gehenna must be, must be a reference to the lake of fire. The problem with this is, if Gehenna refers to the lake of fire, then this would indicate either A that Jesus is indicating that his hearers can lose their salvation for committing these sins. He's talking to believing disciples. 
So if it means the lake of fire, then the indication is is if they have uh, mental attitude sins of hatred towards someone that they're in danger of going to the lake of fire or if they commit uh, have lust, sexual lust in their heart, then they're in danger of the lake of fire, then you could lose your salvation. That's the Arminian option. The Lordship salvation option is what Jesus is giving is a test that if you are truly a believer, then you won't hate your brother, you won't have adulterous thoughts in your heart. If you do, then maybe you're not truly saved. You're not really a believer. You weren't ever saved to begin with. Now, both of those are problems because the Bible makes it clear that we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So since that interpretive option contradicts numerous passages of Scripture, we ought to at least ask the question of whether or not this is talking about something else. Now, since the major problem is this parallelism in Mark 9 with eternal fire, we need to ask the question, is this really eternal? That is, talking about endless fire. Does eternal always mean eternal? Does everlasting always mean forever and ever? And let me tell you, it does not. There are many passages where the words um, that uh, are used in Hebrew and Greek for eternity just mean a long time. There are times when they mean forever and ever. The lake of fire in Matthew uh, 24 clearly, I mean, excuse me, Matthew 25, 41, clearly speaks of an eternal forever and ever lake of fire. But that is very clear from the context and from that passage. But when we look at the passages related to, uh, related to the Valley of Hinnom, there are reasons to think that this is a temporal judgment that is, and where the language indicates intensity rather than length of time. For example, Matthew 18.8, we read, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast or to be thrown into the everlasting fire. Well, see, that seems to be that it's eternal. must be the lake of fire. Matthew 18.9 says something similar, but there it is in the original it reads to be cast into hellfire. But if we translate it rather than interpret it, what Jesus says in parallel is it's better to to, uh, pluck out one of your eyes rather than having two eyes to be thrown into the fiery garbage dump in the valley of Hinnom. What does it mean to be thrown into the valley of Hinnom? Well, we got We have to answer this eternal question first. Matthew 9.43 parallels eternal with this concept of never being quenched. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to, again, Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched. What does it mean when it says that something goes on and on and should never be quenched? Well, what we see in the Old Testament is there are predictions of judgment 
in unquenchable fire. For example, in Jeremiah 17, 27, a fire that will also burn forever, according to Jeremiah 17, 4. But these terms don't describe eternal judgment on the southern kingdom of Israel. They are describing the temporal judgment of their defeat and conquest by the Babylonians. Now, that temporal judgment where the people were cast into the Valley of Hinnom did not go on forever and ever and ever. It was a temporal judgment. In the Hebrew idiom, the emphasis is not on the so much the length of time as it is on the intensity of the judgment. So we see in our second observation that the fire of Hinnom is described as both eternal and unquenchable. But these words are both used to describe intensity of judgment rather than the length of judgment. The judgment as described as unquenchable is used in Isaiah 34, 8, which is describing the punishment of the day of the Lord. Well, that is that occurs at the end of the tribulation period, but it's not an eternal judgment. Those judgments begin and end at the second coming. So eternal there and unquenchable doesn't refer to something that never ends, but is describing the intensity of the judgment. Jeremiah 7.20, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Well, obviously, it's not going on today. That's a description of the historical judgment in 586. So this phraseology of something not being quenched can emphasize something that is just an intense temporal judgment. In Isaiah 66, 12, it's used to describe a judgment that is eternal and unquenchable, but the description is of people in the millennial kingdom looking out upon the bodies that are being judged, uh, the corpses of those who were judged during the day of the Lord. This is parallel to looking at the burial of the dead from the Gog and Magog invasion that's described in Ezekiel 39, 11 to 16, where it took seven months to clean up all of the corpses. So in conclusion, what we see is that the Valley of Hinnom was a Jewish metaphor building upon the events of the Old Testament that invoked the memory of Israel's spiritual failure and God's judgment upon them. And the metaphor is designed to warn believers of the very real dangers of divine discipline in time and the loss of rewards and shame at the judgment seat of Christ. It emphasizes the seriousness of sin in the life of the believer, that even though we are saved by grace, we need to be forgiven of our sins through the use of 1 John 1, 9, but we are, are not to live a, li- a lifestyle of licentious sinfulness because when we do that, we are in danger of shame at the judgment seat of Christ. We're in danger of losing rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and we are in danger of divine discipline in time when God will bring judgment into our lives in order to gain our attention and bring us back to him. So the message of Jesus is not one of judgment, but one to remind his disciples that the Christian life is serious 
and that we are to live in obedience to him and that we are to walk by means of the Spirit as it will be developed for church-age believers in order to have works that have value for eternity that we might be rewarded for them at the judgment seat of Christ and fully enter into all of the blessings and privileges that are ours in the coming kingdom. Now, now that we understand this, I'm going to take the next couple of weeks, we'll go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but we'll see from what I've talked about this morning, this will be a foundation for dealing with these future references to the Valley of Hinnom as we go through the remainder of the Gospel of Matthew. But this is not a warning to scare us that we might lose our salvation. It's not a warning to scare us that maybe we weren't saved. It is a warning to the seriousness of our spiritual life to challenge us to make the study of the Word of God and its application in our lives the highest priority in our spiritual life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study through this important terminology come to understand that your grace is not compromised by threats of a loss of salvation, that your grace is, is not compromised by an emphasis on, on antinomianism or licentiousness, but that in your grace you also bring discipline into our lives in order to teach us and to train us to walk in dependence upon you and to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we also pray for anyone who's here this morning who may not be sure of their eternal destiny, may not be certain of what will happen when they die, that at this point they can have confidence and certainty by putting their faith in Christ. Scripture teaches that we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we've done. We're saved by faith, not by works. It's a gift that you have given us. And, Father, we pray that uh, they might understand that salvation is simply by trusting in Christ. As the Apostle Paul replied to the jailer in Philippi, we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Nothing else is required. Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross, and by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. Now, Father, we thank you again for the fact that we have had 10 wonderful years of ministry with this church, with this congregation, and we pray and look forward to many more years, and we look forward to the ways in which you will use us and bless us. And we thank you for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.